Welcome to the Good Neighbours podcast. This is a series on the UK and its relations with the EU and European countries after Brexit. We look at the EU-UK relationship, consider how the relationship compares with the EU's relations with its other neighbours, and discuss the UK's new bilateral relations in Europe. I'm Hussein Kassin, Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia and a Senior Fellow of the UK and Changing Europe. And I'm Dr Cleo Davis, Senior Research Associate on Negotiating the Future. Today, we're looking at the EU's relations with its neighbours, both as a way of thinking about the UK's current relationship with the EU and how it might evolve, and at the EU's interaction with European countries that don't aspire to EU membership. We're delighted to welcome our two very distinguished guests. Stephanie Walter is full professor at the University of Zurich, where she has been based in the political science department since 2013. A leading figure in international relations and political economy, she is currently working on projects on the mass politics of disintegration, Brexit, and the backlash against globalization. And Christian Frommelt, who is director and head of research politics at the Liechtenstein Institute, he has written widely about the EU's relationship with its neighbours and is leading a research project on the effects of Brexit on Liechtenstein, the European Economic Area, Switzerland and the EU. Thank you so much, both of you, to, for joining us. Um, can we start by asking you how you would describe Switzerland's relationship with the EU? Perhaps I can turn to you, Stephanie, first. Sure. Uh, so Switzerland um, currently has about 120 bilateral treaties with the EU that define their relationship. So they have a close relationship, but it's sort of custom made to what uh, Switzerland and the EU have, have agreed on. It's a so-called sectoral approach. So they go by sector and sector. That includes free movement of people, adherence to EU regulations in the sectors where Switzerland has access to the internal market, um, but also includes some important exceptional arrangements for Switzerland, for example, in, um, in the area of protecting Swiss wages. Right? It's a so-called static relationship, which means that there are treaties and every time the EU sort of updates its own regulations, Switzerland has to update these regulations as well. So uh, it's not a dynamic uh, process that automatically Swiss laws are being regulated. It also doesn't have a dispute settlement system. It's a relationship that has worked quite well, but both sides actually agree that the relationship should evolve, um, but they don't agree on exactly how that relationship should evolve. You have to differ a little bit between the political functioning of the, of the relationship and also the technical functioning of the relationship. And I think on the basis, the, the, the relationship between Switzerland and the EU is still working pretty well. And, and especially the technical cooperation is still doing good. But on the political, there is a, a, an increasing dispute and everything gets more and more politicized, even this technical cooperation. And I think this is the main challenge that we now face in the relations between Switzerland and you. Oh, that's very interesting. Thank you both for the for the uh, brief um, background there. I mean, the EU doesn't like this form of relationship. Um, how has that message been communicated to Switzerland? The, the current approach is really ideal for Switzerland because it allows Switzerland to cooperate in those areas where it benefits, but at the same time, it allows it to shelter both its direct democratic political system and also areas and sectors where it does not like to cooperate at the same time. 
that's something that the EU doesn't like so much because uh, it basically means that you know Switzerland takes part in some parts of the single market, but not in uh, in all of them. And then also it creates all these transaction costs, and of course it also creates all these questions on part of EU members why Switzerland gets all these exceptions and they do not. Right. So that's why the EU has really been trying to have a more uh, more structured approach, um, one where there's a uh, um, dispute settlement system, when there, when that's more dynamic so that, you know, uh, changes in EU laws are automatically um, also applied to the bilateral treaties. It, the institutional framework that the EU wants to build for these bilateral um, agreements um, to make them sort of more easily uh, to handle and also sort of to align them a bit more with the rest of the EU's infrastructure, right? Um, Switzerland doesn't like this in particular because it would give the European Court of Justice, the ECJ, a particular important role. It would sort of, the EU insists that EU law needs to be adjudicated in the end by the ECJ. And in Switzerland, that's perceived as foreign judges judging on Swiss law. And so that, that has been a big, big bone of contention. And the problem now is that the EU um, has said for a while now that unless Switzerland agrees to create this institutional framework for the bilateral treaties. They will not sign any new treaties with Switzerland. They will also let the existing treaties erode. So over time, the erosion of the bilateral treaties will like uh, will really decrease the level of integration that Switzerland and um, the EU have, even though, as Christian was saying, Currently, things still are working well. There are only a few areas of the medtech industry. It's us as researchers because we have been um, excluded from the Horizon Europe program because that's also a new program that the EU has refused to enter into. But there will be bigger changes like for the machinery industry, for example, going forward that really can, can, um, can hurt uh, the Swiss economy quite, quite strongly. Now, that's fantastic, Stephanie. Point, at this point in time, what are the mechanisms? Are they just um, that govern um, the, the EU-Switzerland relationship? The existing bilateral approach that Switzerland and the EU have go basically back to 1992, where Switzerland was actually thinking about joining the European economic area, where uh, Liechtenstein, for example, is part of, but also Norway and, and, um, and some other countries. So that's a really closely uh, integrated institution that's not part of the EU, but very closely aligned to the single market, essentially part of the single market. Switzerland is a direct democracy, so treaties like that have to be put for a vote. Uh, that happened in 1992, and it was narrowly rejected. Right? At the time, Switzerland really saw it, or the Swiss government saw Switzerland on the way towards EU membership even. Uh, they, they had deposited um, a, a, you know, a request to, for candidacy, um, they were thinking EEA, the EEA, the European Economic Area, would be sort of a first step towards membership. And then, you know, the people voted against that. And that was quite a big shock. Uh, so then uh, relations had to be rebuilt after that. And that was difficult. So in the late 1990s and early 2000s, um, Switzerland and the EU really sat together and tried to fix, um, fix this problem. And then they devised a set of bilateral treaties. So that was, of course, also set against the idea that Switzerland would eventually join the EU which now is really off the table. People really do not want to join the EU anymore. It's very unpopular. And no one, no political party, except one that's toying with the idea, but really nobody's really politically strongly pushing for EU membership. So, uh, so the bilateral treaties sort of emerged as a sort of solution because the ready-made solution was rejected by the Swiss people, right? So how it works is essentially that you have these different bilateral treaties. Um, they're implemented by, by uh, parliament and government um, that has 
been a study which shows that about one third of Swiss laws are Europeanized directly or indirectly, right? So a lot of Swiss legislation is actually influenced by Europe. But the problem is that it's very cumbersome. Um, also, Switzerland would like to extend its relations with the EU in some key areas. Uh, and, and one, and perhaps the most important one, is electricity, where Switzerland now really faces problems because the European Union um, is building this more coherent internal EU electricity market which then also creates problems for third countries because they really now then come second in line, and especially in a situation like that. But even before the Ukraine crisis, the government was warning that without an electricity agreement, we might have uh, electricity shortages and companies would have to be required to sort of shut off production for like an hour a day or something like that. And we're talking about 2025 and this was before the Ukraine war. So now this has become even more urgent. So that's an area where Switzerland really wants to cooperate with the EU. But again, the EU is insisting that unless the institutional questions are resolved, um, it's not gonna go forward. I, I think the interesting question is rather it's not why Switzerland has opted for this approach. Actually, in retrospect, specific, it is interesting why the EU has made that pass possible. And, and there it is really the case, as Stephanie has already pointed out, it has been seen as a professional uh, agreement, you know, after the EA uh, has rejected and then uh, the EU, you know, when the uh, the bilateral uh, treatments with Switzerland has been negotiated. This was uh, the phases where the EU was very optimistic about its own future and, the, and about its own attractiveness. You know, it was in the end of the 90s where, where all, um, a lot of states have been uh, willing to join the EU. And I think that was also the, uh, the, the reason why the EU offered uh, uh, this bilateral treatment to Switzerland, which in the end uh, probably it now regrets that it has offered uh, such a, a complex and also a very static uh, uh, agreement. Can I, can I just ask um, a, a question here? Because we're used to hearing um, from academics and others that the EU um, has has such tremendous power. It's an empire that it's able to impose its model on on third countries. So this is a really extraordinary exception. So how 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 would you explain it? You know, looking back. Well, I mean, I think Christian pointed. I think Christian pointed to the the really key thing at the at the moment when the bilateral treaties were negotiated the EU thought this was the path to, for uh, for Switzerland's EU membership, right? Also, uh, this and, and Christian also said this, right? This was a moment where the EU was really strong and very attractive. So that's very different now because the EU has become under much more pressure uh, internally from Eurosceptics, but also externally with, you know, countries like, you know, the UK sort of now from outside looking at it. And, and, and it's much harder, I think. Also, the EU has become much more diverse, much bigger, right? So it's much harder to keep them all together. At, at the time when they were negotiating, the, the, the EU was still a pretty small club, right? So it was much easier to, to do these exceptions. And so even though both sides, I think, agree that they want to cooperate, um, sort of really how to really structure that and how to distribute the, the, the gains and, and, and sort of compromises, that's sort of the big bone of contention. Switzerland is a very uh, wealthy state and things like that, so it can afford to be outside the EA for one year, for two years, and, and so on. So it had, it has, it had uh, the time to negotiate at that. And now it is even uh, stronger in the case of the institutional framework agreement. We know whether, the, whether you always uh, put on some pressure, but Switzerland could resist on, uh, to this pressure. 
especially because it has a has a fallback option, and this is the bilateral uh, uh, treaties that are in place now. And and I think this also gives the uh, Switzerland to some extent a, 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 a quite a good security to negotiate it. There is not a, such a immediate pressure, except for Horizon, which is uh, one of these key uh, uh, topic uh, where you really put uh, the big pressure on, on Switzerland. But on the other hand, they, they, they can still be patient and, and just hope that uh, they will succeed uh, uh, with its negotiation technique. But it will become difficult, more difficult, I think. Now. Thank you um, to you both there. Um, you mentioned both of you the politics domestically around this. There's a very strong support for this uh, governance by bilateral treaties. How strong is the consensus as these bilateral treaties do erode? Do you foresee this changing? Yeah, so the Swiss political system is very unique uh, and very special. So it's a direct democracy. So that means that all major treaties, especially international treaties, have to go through a popular vote. It also means because referendums are so divisive, you know, as your British listeners will probably know, uh, that the rest of the political institutions in Switzerland are very consensus um, seeking. So, for example, we always have the same four parties in government, which also means that then basically all parties are involved in policymaking. And there is sort of an effort to really have a consensus built, also including, you know, the trade unions, the employers, uh, associations like the cantons, like all the big political actors to craft a consensus before it actually needs to go to a popular vote so that it can actually pass. Right. So that, that's sort of the, the Swiss model of policymaking. That has become more difficult in recent time because as in many other countries, Switzerland has become more polarized and especially polarized on the question of Europe. The problem really is that um, the, everybody agrees that the bilateral treaties are excellent and everybody, I think, agrees that they would like to keep it. And if you look at public opinion polls, this is also what the public says. Let's keep what we have. The problem is that's an option that's no longer on the table because the EU says, no, we're going to let it erode it. This is not this is not possible anymore. So then it's the question, what are the alternatives? And essentially, I see four main alternatives. One is EU membership, going from sort of the most integration to the least integration. EU membership, having a framework agreement, letting the bilateral relations erode on the bit, but keeping like the treaties that we currently have, or sort of terminating sort of all these bilateral treaties and just trading on um, on sort of WTO terms or, you know, um, Switzerland is also part of the of EFTA, the European Free Trade Area, um, and, and they would remain that. So, but then that would really be a much, uh, much reduced level of integration that what we're currently seeing. The other thing is that we've, we've put out public opinion surveys where we ask um, people to choose between these four options that I just sketched out. And the interesting thing is that the institutional framework agreement wins in all of these scenarios. Right. It's the only it's the only one that wins against all of them, uh, including against erosion. The, the second more popular is the erosion of the bilateral treaties and both EU membership and sort of exit of all the agreements. They're the least popular. So so I think there, there is actually room to maneuver on part of sort of the voters. What makes it difficult is um, is really the political parties. There's one like Switzerland's biggest political party, the SVP, the, the Swiss People's Party, basically became big in the context of this 1992 rejection of the uh, European Economic Area vote uh, and has been sort of against close relations with the EU ever since. So that's a big part of parliamentarians, also big voters who don't want close relations. And it's not really clear right now. I mean, like now 
Swiss-EU relations have been in stalemate for a year, ever since the government pulled out. And it's really not clear. Everybody's just <laughs> finger pointing and, and, and realizing that the situation is getting worse, but there's not really a solution in sight. Thank you very much. Um, so perhaps we've, we've had a very good overview here of the EU-Swiss relationship, its complexity, but also the complexity uh, at domestic level politically. <laughs> I wonder now, just moving on, perhaps Christian, how does uh, this relationship compare uh, with Liechtenstein's relationship with the EU? At first sight, uh, I think the Liechtenstein relationship with you is much easier than the Swiss uh, relationship is. Liechtenstein is a member of the European Economic Area, so we have joined uh, the European Economic Area also based on a popular vote. So we voted, uh, the Liechtenstein people voted one week after the Swiss voted on the on the EA membership, we voted in favor for it. Uh, then we had to do a second vote uh, three years after because we had to uh, somehow adjust the EA agreement and also we had also adjust our custom union treaty with Switzerland. So that, uh, that both memberships are possible for Liechtenstein. Uh, Liechtenstein has somehow uh, uh, could somehow cherry picking uh, pretty well and then also played its card as a very small state pretty well. And that was also the EU has always showed a lot of flexibility to Liechtenstein because it honored its willingness to integrate despite its smallness. You know, for us, it was a, a tremendous effort uh, to establish all those capacity to comply with EEA law. And we were really the first microstate who really had this ambition of being part of, uh, of European integration. And the EU has honored that and, and has accepted some opt-outs which, uh, which it wouldn't accept uh, for, for other states, obviously. And because they are uh, just uh, opt-outs for Liechtenstein, they also don't set a precedent for other states, you know, because Liechtenstein is so small and opt-outs provided to Liechtenstein, they don't have negative externalities for uh, for the functioning of the internal market as such. Thanks very much, Christian. Um, if I could just um, sort of move the discussion um, on a bit towards the Brexit debate. Um, Switzerland was mentioned by a number of Brexiteers during the referendum campaign as a potential model for the UK after Brexit. Did you think that was realistic? Well, I mean, it's very clear why it was mentioned, because it, as we discussed before, it's a very attractive model, right? It really allows countries to sort of, it's a tailor-made relationship. You can cooperate on those areas where you like, you can leave out the areas that you don't like and so on. Um, but I'm not so sure it's really so realistic because uh, as we also discussed, the EU has become much more skeptical of this arrangement. So, I mean, I think the appetite on part of the EU to engage in such a relationship, you know, not just with Switzerland, but in addition with the UK, uh, I think is relatively low. That said, of course, the UK uh, is a more powerful state than, than Switzerland just by sheer economic size and so on. Um, also, you know, security and so on. So, I mean, you know, it probably has more bargaining leverage. And many, many in the Leave campaign uh, sort of pointed to the um, the frontier between the EU and, and Switzerland and with Liechtenstein as, as a potential model for the Irish border. Um, we saw many pictures from Brexiteers on that border demonstrating how frictionless and, and without process it was. Um, again, what, did, what, did you, what were your thoughts about that when you when you saw those um, when you saw that, that um, example being pointed to? Yeah, and it's actually the case that uh, also there were a lot of experts from the UK here in Liechtenstein uh, discussing about the Liechtenstein-Swiss border or Liechtenstein-Swiss-EU border uh, because they were uh, very interested in, in, in this uh, topic. As I mentioned before, uh, Liechtenstein voted in favor for the EA in 1992 and then again in 1995 in between 
uh, we had to adjust the custom union treaty with Switzerland and also the EA agreement in order to allow this kind of uh, a parallel marketability of goods. And this was in order to um, prevent the reintroduction of border controls between Switzerland and, and Liechtenstein. So in the it is the case now in Liechtenstein that um, there are goods in place based on EEA standards, but also on Swiss standards. So they can both circulate in Liechtenstein. And this, this is this unique situation uh, uh, on which they were also interested in, in how, how, how we can uh, find such a solution for, uh, uh, for, uh, for Northern Ireland. But, you know, there are some preconditions how the, why this uh, model works for Liechtenstein and Switzerland. And the first of all it is that there is still a border between uh, Liechtenstein and the EU, it is controlled by Switzerland, but it, it, it is there is still a border. So uh, the goods circulating in Liechtenstein based on Swiss standards, they cannot uh, uh, go to uh, move to, to the EU without uh, going through this uh, border control, you know. So there is still uh, this hard uh, infrastructure of a hard border uh, between Liechtenstein and the EU and so between Switzerland and the EU. And on the other hand, there is uh, the small size of Liechtenstein again, uh, which uh, has, which makes it much easier to control all the, the this uh, free movement of goods and 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 uh, to see it. You know, you have to be, you have to keep in mind that the challenges that come with this parallel marketability. For instance, you, we have a lot of companies uh, which have. Uh, uh, which are settled here in Liechtenstein, but also 10 kilometers uh, uh, next uh, to uh, in Switzerland. So just go over the Rhine where there is no uh, physical border. So uh, the companies there are both in Liechtenstein and in Switzerland, but they can use, uh, they have to use different products in Switzerland and in Liechtenstein. And in the end, I think this is also a very important uh, uh, condition, precondition why this parallel marketability is working uh, due to the MRA agreement between Switzerland and you, the list of project pro products where there are different standards between Switzerland and you is very low. And this is also the difference uh, uh, regarding the UK, you know, which has just a free trade agreement and not a mutual recognition agreement. So the list of uh, uh, standards uh, of products with different standards is much longer. And, and this would be a risk for us, for instance, you know, if the, if the, uh, uh, relationship between Switzerland and the EU erode further, then this list uh, would be would become lower uh, longer again for Liechtenstein, and then we had to control more uh, regarding the different standards and where they cir circulate those products. You talked about the hard border. Is there paperwork involved there on on, on the two sides? Is, is there a problem? No, obviously, the, you know the, the the border between Switzerland and the EU overall is working pretty smooth uh, obviously you know that, 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 that but there is still a hard a hard border and there is still, there are still controls for goods and and there's still a lot of paperwork to do and 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 there, there are also cal calculations that it would be actually attractive for swiss uh, uh, companies to be in a custom union with switzerland because it we would release them uh, from quite a quite some paperwork but uh, nevertheless, I think it's, it's, it, it, there is this infrastructure and there is this uh, paperwork, but overall, I think the, it is uh, doing pretty well. But I, I wanted to say something on the Swiss EU border. And I was always a big uh, puzzle that, you know, when, when Brexiteers would come and sort of say, look, it's so frictionless, because 
uh, the most frictionless part of the Swiss border is sort of is people moving across um, uh, the border. And that is because, and we haven't talked about this actually, uh, Switzerland is actually part of Schengen, right? And because we're part of Schengen, that has uh, has um, reduced a lot of the, you know, the, the cross-border passport checks. That's the easy part. But for goods, there are still checks, like Christian was still saying, and there are checks for, you know, big companies transporting. You sometimes have quite a long, uh, lines in some of the um, uh, in, in some of the border crossing, especially like on the weekend when the when the administration at the border is closed, for example, then you know, see these lorries parked there until uh, it opens again. There's also restrictions, for example, for people who go shopping, uh, you know, in the EU. So, you know, here I live in Zurich. People like to go shopping in Constance, which is just in Germany, because things are cheaper there. But there's a limit of about, you know, like 200 francs or something that you can bring in. There's much tighter limits, for example, for anything related to meat, um, because meat is much cheaper and meat is protected in Switzerland. So it's not like it's completely frictionless, right? It's not like you would move, be moving from, say, the Netherlands to France. Or or Netherlands to, to Germany. There's uh, it's it's not so it always made me wonder what what they sort of see in this as sort of really frictionless. Of course, it's much less uh, frictions than when you go really fully outside a country that's associated with the EU. But it's much more friction than if you move within the EU. No, no I think it's a, a very interesting point uh, to add here is that. Uh, Stephanie has uh, mentioned before the static nature of, of the bilateral tre uh, treaties with Switzerland and the EU, but there are some agreements which are dynamic. And uh, one of them is obviously Schengen, a Schengen agreement, which is dynamic. But there is also a very uh, another one, which is a very specific agreement, and it's also a rather unknown. It's this agreement on the carriage of goods, uh, which is uh, related to the custom facilitation and security. And here it is really that it is a very dynamic agreement, uh, which actually more or less uh, uh, brings uh, an automatic policy transfer from the EU to, to Switzerland. And that this shows somehow how important it is also for Switzerland to have a good co border cooperation with, uh, uh, with the EU. Great. Thanks very much. So um, how closely was Brexit followed in um, Switzerland and, and Liechtenstein? And um, have there been any lessons drawn from either the, the referendum, the negotiations or the agreement that was signed between the UK and the EU? Brexit was watched very closely in Switzerland and it was uh, repeatedly discussed what that would mean uh, for uh, Switzerland. At the time when Brexit happened, Switzerland and the EU were just like in the process of um, negotiating the framework agreement that now later uh, was not signed. Um, and for example, the Swiss government uh, thought at the time that perhaps Brexit would be really helpful because the UK was more powerful, would probably negotiate this really great deal with the uh, EU, and then the EU would just have to give the same to Switzerland. Now, that did not happen. Um, we can also see that when, you know, uh, the, the ups and downs of the Brexit negotiations were really also very followed very closely. Every time there was sort of a major event in the Brexit negotiations, we would have editorials in all Swiss newspapers discussing what this meant for Switzerland's relationship with the EU. Um, we can also see this in Twitter discourse, where you can see that whenever sort of Brexit is going well, the Eurosceptics are really tweeting a lot about uh, 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 Switzerland and the EU, and uh, and also Brexit. And then when it's not going so well, it's more the Europhile parties that are actually uh, tweeting about um, uh, the EU and Brexit. Um, 
And you can also see how, you know, like the same episodes in Brexit were watched differently or judged differently by different um, observers. So, for example, when Boris Johnson um, signed his, his, his great deal um, with the, you know, with the, 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 that he later now said wasn't so good, but at the time sort of said, you know, this was a fantastic deal that he had negotiated. Um, sort of uh, Roger Köppel, who is like one of the, um, the, the, you know, like a, a very popular politician from the populist right party, the SVP, um, uh, tweeted that, you know, this shows that you just have to stand up to the EU and then, you know, you can just get what you want. And the on the same day, one of the um, center-right parliamentarians, who's more Europhile, uh, tweeted about the exact same event. Look, this Johnson deal shows that in the end, we see that the fallout, the economic fallout, um, a no deal would have had really drives people back to the negotiation power. We also need to compromise with the EU. So Brexit was also watched through different lenses um, in, in the Swiss political process, but was watched very carefully. And, and what about the, the outcome? Do you think there are any lessons to be learned from the um, from the agreement? Well, I mean, I think what this shows is that the EU's willingness to compromise and, and make exceptions um, has really gone down in recent years. And I do think that that's related to the fact that the EU has become so much more contested and so much more diverse. So crafting a compromise with 27 member states is already very complicated, right? And you have to sort of really navigate this and then suddenly having like these different countries that on top of that crafted compromise want their own thing and their own, um, which then of course raises also questions for the 27 that had agreed on why do they get the exception that you told me I could not have? So I think that that uh, the EU really has changed from the time, you know, Christian was talking about the opt-outs that Liechtenstein had received. That was all at a time when it was still easier, I think, for the EU to make concessions. And we've seen this in the Brexit negotiations. And I think what this shows uh, with regard to Switzerland is there's not that much room to maneuver, that the willingness on part of the EU to compromise has become um, lower and that the, willing, that the EU is really willing to also tolerate high economic pain. I mean, think about, I mean, the EU in the end was willing, I think, to let a no deal Brexit happen, which would have been really, I mean, would have been really bad for the UK, but it would have also been really bad for the EU. And likewise, the erosion of the bilateral treaties with the EU is bad for the for the EU, but also bad for, like, but it's even worse for Switzerland, right? Very interesting, though, what you're saying, Stephanie, more generally going beyond the Swiss case and, and even Brexit. How has the EU's relationship uh, how does it compare with with others in uh, the similarity or the differences you point to? It's very important to remember that how the EU deals with third countries based on long-standing principles. Uh, we often mention uh, a refer here to the Interlaken principles, which have been uh, uh, published in the in the eighties. Uh, you know there are about three main principles. First of all, the relations with third countries should not slow down the process of European integration. They should not compromise the EU's own decision-making autonomy and also not its legal order and the share of powers with non-member states. And there should be a, a balance of benefits and obligation in the end. And, uh, you know, uh, when watching or observing the uh, negotiation between Switzerland and the EU on the one hand, but also regarding Brexit, you could, I always had the feeling that uh, the understanding of the principles and, and guidelines of the EU were, was like they, the EU wants to tease us, you know, the, uh, uh, but it's actually not the case. You know, the, the EU wants to have consistency 
based on the already existed uh, and established models. Obviously, there are also some similarities between uh, these different models, uh, especially the, you know, the old EFTA states are reluctant state, uh, reluctant Europeans. You know, they, they don't they have some caveats, uh, reservations against European integration, especially regarding political integration. They want to uh, protect their sovereignty. But Stephanie, you've been leading a project on contagion and the impact of um, Brexit on public opinion and party competition um, elsewhere in Europe. I just wondered if you can can say something about about your findings and about why Brexit didn't really catch fire. Yeah, so when Brexit happened, there was this big fear that it will sort of spark uh, similar demands everywhere across Europe and Europe might just sort of crumble and, and uh, fall apart. Um, so my project looks at sort of how Brexit has affected public opinion in, uh, in the EU27, but also in Switzerland, and also um, political discourse, so partisan discourse, how they talk about, you know, the EU in the media or in parliamentary speeches and so on. Um, and the interesting thing is what you can see is that these contagion effects really exist. And um, we can see both sort of encouragement effects so that people, you know, think Brexit is a good thing. So we should, my country should also leave the EU. But we also see deterrence effects so that they think, oh, Brexit is not going so well. Maybe we shouldn't do this either. And I think what is the interesting thing is, is that th th this, these effects really track the ups and downs of the Brexit process. So whenever Brexit is going well, particularly at the referendum, that, that's you can also see this in partisan discourses, all these Eurosceptic policymakers speaking out for Frexit and Dexit and Auxit and Finxit, whatever, you know, like we should all also leave. And then you see that suddenly they become much quieter. And also when they talk about the EU, they no longer demand that their countries should leave the EU, but they start saying things like, well, the EU should reform. And only if it doesn't reform, we'll exit. And then it even goes down to that. They don't even talk about exit in those cases. Then they just say, we need to reform the EU, right? So now it's been picking up a little bit more again in the 2019 parliament, uh, European parliamentary elections. You see more criticism again, but doesn't quite reach the heights of the, the, the Brexit um, case anymore. And I think that's related to the fact that the Brexit process has not really played out exactly how the Brexiteers had envisioned it, right? It didn't, you know, produce this um, UK that had all the benefits of membership, but none of the costs. And I think what my research suggests, both for public opinion, but also for Eurosceptic parties and so on, is that had Brexit gone much better, so had the EU been more, you know, uh, forthcoming and sort of giving UK uh, what it wanted, then I think we would actually see much more pressure on the EU, much more uh, support for exit. So uh, the fact that we haven't really seen so much of a contagion effect in terms of other countries wanting to leave, I think is a direct result of the EU's hard negotiation stance and non-accommodating negotiation stance, which it itself was informed by the fear that it would spark such demands. Yeah, thank you very much um, for that. I mean. Perhaps briefly, you've worked quite a lot, Christian, on external differentiation. Could you tell us a bit about that concept and its value for comparing EU's relationship with third countries? External differentiated is mainly defined as the selective extension of the validity of EU legal rules to third country. I think this is important to keep in mind that we are here uh, talking about a, a rule transfer. You know, so external uh, differentiation is not external relations. It needs some kind of a level of, of cooperation and also some kind of legal uh, uh, cooperation. So it's the extension of the validity of EU legal uh, rules without uh, the formal membership, right? So the mostly 
uh, integrated non-member state is still quite far away from the uh, strongly differentiated internal member state. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's the main point about external differentiated integration. So looking ahead, um, the, Northern, the Northern Ireland Protocol and its implementation has been a real stumbling block in the UK's post-Brexit uh, relationship with the EU. Do you think there are any lessons to be learned from other land borders um, um, elsewhere between the EU uh, member and non-member states that could perhaps offer a way out? I mean, I, I think the, the Northern Ireland question in general is really difficult, right? Uh, and it has been throughout uh, the whole Brexit process, and I think it was underappreciated um, by Brexiteers, especially in the beginning. Um, and it really creates problems um, for the EU to the extent that, you know, in the end, Northern Ireland actually has a pretty good arrangement because it can trade easily with the EU right now. But of course, then having this border within the UK creates a lot of political problems uh, within the uh, within the UK. So in that sense, I think the, the Liechtenstein model, which is sort of in a customs union with Switzerland, but also in the EEA, uh, is, is an interesting model. But I think what Christian was talking about was also, um, you know, the high level of trust and, you know, being a small country and not sort of this being politicized and sort of taken as a big win, but sort of just pocketing it quietly. That's not really what the British government is out for, right? It wants like an outright win against the EU and showing that makes it politically really difficult for the EU. And uh, uh, so, so I, I think it's a real impasse. I don't really know uh, where this is going to go, but my sense is that the EU, especially because it is being contested internally, it also needs to sort of show that, you know, there's some value in being part of it rather than sort of being pushed around as it wants. That my my hunch is that uh, the EU is not going to like just play along and say, okay, we're going to have all these flexible arrangements because after all, that's also what they've tried, right? I think a lot of arrangement that they've had in place relied a lot on trust and that let's have checks like behind the border and so on. And the British have been reluctant to actually build up these posts and so on, even though they were agreed. They've repeatedly sort of backed out of existing agreements. And I think we're now at a point where trust is so fraught between the UK and the EU that that's going to be really difficult. So, I mean, I think that's also interesting because it shows that relations between countries are both built on sort of these legal arrangements, which gives you sort of the the general structure. But then the real functioning really also depends on sort of these softer factors such as trust, do you believe that, you know, they'll carry out these checks okay? Or do you think they won't really do it? They'll say they'll do it, but then they'll renege and so on. So I think um, I think the it's really about high time that, Swiss, that the UK and the EU come back to a more like working relationship. But I also think that, especially with the current government, probably it's going to be hard to do because they're so, it's so in their DNA in a way to be anti-EU. Right. So um, it's it's a it's a very tricky problem and I don't really have a good solution to it. I fully agree with uh, with Stephanie regarding the point of trust. I think this is very important. You can see that also regarding the uh, if you compare the assessment by the EU of the EA and of the Swiss EU relations. I think the EA is often assessed as a as the as a very good functioning model. And uh, if you if you look at it, then you agree that it's functioning well in compar- uh, comparison to the Swiss EU relations. But if you look at the agreement itself and then the, the, the goals that has been set out by the agreement, and if you take those goals and assess the EA agreement and it's functioning based on these goals, then you have the impression that it's not functioning that well uh, uh, because there is some kind of uh, disruption. You know, this, you have this high institutional complexity of the EA agreement, which 
makes it very difficult to, to administrate. There's a huge backlog in the, in the policy transfer from the EU to the EA and so on. And, uh, but what is really the big advantage of the EA is really the, the credibility uh, that EAF the states have and that they also can regularly show because there is a, a continuous institutional uh, and political dialogue between the EAF, the states and, uh, and the EU based on the, uh, on the institution that have been set up with the uh, EA agreement. And this is a big advantage uh, that some, uh, that for instance, Switzerland is missing uh, in, in its relationship with the EU. And I think really the, the credibility, trust and things like that, these are very important uh, uh, patterns uh, to understand how uh, external differentiated integration can, can work. Great, thanks very much. And I know that we're all political scientists and we hate asking about the future, um, but I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna put this question to you um, anyway. How do you see EU-UK relations developing in the future? Um, do you think that Macron's idea of um, the European political community has got any, any mileage at all? Um, and you know, Martin Westlake, um, who's um, been a guest in another in another uh, um, episode in the series, has outlined all of these options, these possible options for ways in which the EU could, um, the UK could move in its relationship with the EU. Um, are any of those realistic? Um, do you think we'll be we'll arrive at any one of those um, soon? I'll do a political science uh, answer <laughs> and remain a bit more um, sort of less concrete, perhaps, but. I think fundamentally what it boils down to this question is this, this trade-off between the benefits of international cooperation and the benefits of sovereignty, right? There's a tension there. You cannot have both. Um, and that's a, it's an it's a unhappy message. It's also something that, you know, people sometimes think you could have both. You could enjoy like, the benefit. But in the end, there's a trade-off, you know, hands down. Uh, you want to have more integration, more cooperation, and you need to give up some some decision-making power. And, you know, that's something even kids learn, you know, you want to play together, then you need to have some common rules, you know, uh, that bind you like the monopoly game or something, you know, that, that you actually play by the same rules. So you give up your freedom to just, you know, you know, just not go to prison or whatever in this game because you're bound by the common rules. And that's just, uh, that's what you need for cooperation is that you bind yourself to a certain degree, but that also means that you give up sovereignty. Now, I think that countries differ and, and societies differ in how much weight they place on the benefits of sovereignty and the willingness that they're willing to give up the benefits of cooperation. That's mostly often, you know, like cooperation gains are often seen in economic gains, but they're of course also, I mean, we see it now, security and peace also depends on cooperation and these kind of things, right? Um, but then, you know, so, so I think societies need to choose where on this trade-off they want to be. And there's different, you know, I think few... Few countries are on sort of either side of this trade-off, but where on this continuum they are, it, it varies. And I think the UK has chosen to go much more in towards the pole of sovereignty than it used to be. Switzerland is certainly also more on the pole of sovereignty than the EU countries, right? And I think that the, the question of how uh, UK-EU relations will evolve, I think, will depend uh, to a large part where the UK decides in the long run where on this continuum it wants to place itself. And that then will sort of determine the options that are open for it. Yeah, I, I fully agree uh, with you on that, uh, Stephanie, on that point. I think the sovereignty is this uh, key uh, key issue. But nevertheless, I would say that it, it also, you could, if you look at external differentiated integration and how they have uh, the, the states like Switzerland or Norway 
how they have established themselves in 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 these models. You know, do you can see also some some kind of past dependency. You know, you are somehow locked in an established institutional framework, and this institutional framework uh, you you try to live with that you know and then you actually don't assess how this institutional framework affects your sovereignty and things like that so i think uh, or, or or not uh, not in the same not in the same way as you should uh, you do it when it comes to uh, assessing another option you know you can see that really uh, it is the case in the case of norway uh, where there is obviously the discussions on the democratic deficits of the of the ea agreement they are somehow underdeveloped and also on the loss of sovereignty that comes with the EA agreement are somehow underdeveloped. But uh, yeah, I, I, I also agree on the point that there are a lot of different models in, in place and also this internal, external differentiation. Obviously, they, they have the same patterns and they try to facilitate the dynamics of integration and bring European states together. But there are some limits for both of them. You know, there is uh, regarding external differentiated integration, there is the limitations is just the com institutional complexity. You know, if you make uh, such complex institutional settings as we have it in the, in the case of DEA, then the, the efficiency is no longer guaranteed. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That's been a that's been a really sort of packed um, conversation. We've learned a tremendous amount um, about about these relationships. So thank you both Christian and Stephanie so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you to our guests. Please join us for the next episode of Good Neighbours.